Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's guest works closely with Merrick Health and is an absolute wizard when it comes to performance-enhancing compounds, hormone optimization, and is interestingly an ankle and foot surgeon by training. Dr. Adam Hotchkiss, welcome to the show, man. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the kind of... Awesome, man. Adam, do you want to... Know a little bit about your your journey, I guess, and how you got so fascinated into health optimization. Yeah, quite a journey. I'll try to uh, kind of consolidate it for you guys. Don't bore you too much, but I mean, essentially, it's crazy. I always think that, like, if I was eighteen and saw myself now, I would not believe you know where I. Am. I always say I barely made it out of high school. Not that it was like hard by any means by me. I just simply didn't try. I didn't have any true ambition or goal. I was literally. Just long-haired skater punk kid that just wanted to skateboard and uh you know listen to punk rock and party with my buddies and never thought i would do anything in medicine but eventually i got to a point where all of that lifestyle was just really kind of negatively impacting everything and you now my parents didn't want to let me live in the house and really have a job wasn't going to school didn't know what the hell i wanted to do but i started picking up working out it was something i got super the fitness scene. I've always been somebody who's a little bit obsessive. When I do something, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to give it like a half-assed amount of things. So I started diving into physiology, biochemistry, what bit that I could understand, having no education and you know, just learning about what the exercise was doing to me and how I could improve my exercise and my capability. From there, I became a personal trainer and thought like, okay, this is cool, but I think I can do more. So a local community college, started taking science courses. And I thought maybe I could be a nurse or something. And the idea came like, no, I want more than that. And now there's any nursing profession. They're amazing. I just kept wanting to accept. And then I thought, well, maybe I could be like a physician assistant because I really thought that my background being at a community college and stuff, I thought, you know, that would never breed a doctor. I thought doctors were, they came from yachts and their parents had a legacy. At yachts, and that wasn't me. 
And then I, I started working for a doctor. He kind of just told me like, man, you've got everything it takes. And he told me his, I went to a community college and then I, I progressed on, I transferred, studied science. Now I got into all these schools. And so I was like, I'll do that. And I kind of path and I uh, went the pre-med. I was very interested in orthopedic surgery at the time, but also very interested in dermatology. I liked a little bit of both. They're both very fascinating, both very fun to do in medicine. At that point, I, I met a podiatrist, which is a, like myself, a foot and ankle surgeon, or basically like a general practitioner of everything below the knee, you get to do a little bit of everything, skin. And so it was kind of a mixture of all that for me. So I went off and, and became a podiatrist, you know, a doctorate in podiatric surgery. And then I did a, a residency in uh, foot and ankle surgery. Um, but then I kind of changed again. I noticed that, you know, I kind of got into all of this because I love exercise. I love fitness. I love human optimization. And I really thought that that was what I was getting into in medicine. And I think in podiatry, probably more than anything else, we see the brunt of reactive medicine and not so much preventative. You know, when it comes to trauma, obviously people aren't coming to me saying, you know, help me to not break my ankle. That just doesn't occur. And then actually more like 90 plus percent of our patients are those with type two diabetes who their disease state has progressed far enough to lead them to what's called peripheral neuropathy, peripheral vascular disease. And they get these ulcerations or wounds, which leads us to having to cut off large parts of their foot and, you know, do various reconstructive surgeries and things. And it was just kind of really depressing to me that my day-to-day life was doing nothing but reactive and helping people with a first preventative, also a reversible disease and diabetes, but instead they just let it progress. And I think society and the medical community as a whole had let it progress to this, to where now I was coming in and cutting on these people. My focus just really kind of changed and I started getting way more back into health coaching. And that's when I met, you know, Derek and Merrick and kind of able to allow me to facilitate all of that, that I've always wanted to do that health coaching. And, you know, I do do some optimization as well, but a lot of it is more just counseling on how to become the you know best version of yourself and not even let disease occur, how to prevent disease rather than treat disease. So mm. hopefully that was consolidated enough. I know yeah. it's a, a lot, but uh, there's a lot there for sure. It's an incredible background. And I guess like, I'm curious to know, Adam, like, have you always been someone who's found it quite easy to, I guess, like study and learn biology and or like, how have you gone like studying wise? No, I kind of not really. I've never kind of thought of myself as being one of those like highly articulate, very intelligent people that just picks things up. I am extremely curious, which, you know, I'm never somebody who goes like, hmm, I wonder about that and just leaves it that I, hmm, I wonder about that. And then I'm searching. You know? So that helped. Also, I just kind of have a tenacity to not give up. And my dad's the same way. I'd watched him do all kinds of things that were outside of his skill set. He would be like, we need a new deck. And he would go figure out, he'd go to the library back then and get books on how to build a deck and build an amazing deck. And I saw that and it was just kind of, we don't have to have the inherent abilities. You can literally work hard enough and achieve them. So yeah, school by no means was super easy to me. I mean, I guess undergrad was kind of okay, but I definitely got crushed all the time in my medical training. And uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of long, long nights where I slept trying to study and cram and, and learn some things. Yeah. Well, interestingly, I'd love to sort of dive deep into, I guess, like specifically around like younger men and some of the, some of the problems that they're facing. I'm sure you've seen tons of different case studies in clinic and in practice. Maybe let's dive deep into what are some of the biggest struggles you're seeing today with young men, particularly around like hormones and hormone optimization. That's actually something I'm pretty interested. I do feel like there's almost a a phenomenon now that everybody thinks that they have low testosterone and, and everybody thinks that they, they have an issue with their hormones and they need to fix it. I find more often than not, when we actually look at the lab work, they pretty much have decent testosterone, but they're experiencing all these other symptoms. And, you know, not to, I don't want to get like political or anything and be like, today's youth are weak. You know, I, I don't know, but I do find a lot of complaints of, you know, they say things like, I'm lacking motivation. And I'm like, yeah, me too. You know, I haven't been motivated to go to the gym for the past 10 years. You know, I have to do it at four in the morning and I'm never motivated to do that. You know, it's like, 
I don't have motivation either. And I don't think that it's your 700 testosterone that you think should be a thousand that's causing it, you know, but we see. And also I do think, you know, I think we're just bombarded by dopamine and everything all day that, you know, a lot of those motivation pathways do kind of get the younger generation and they're saying that they're fatigued and they are lacking motivation. Think that there might be some other external factors to that, you know, everything that surrounds us in society rather than just hormones. That being said, we do see lower hormones too. And I think society plays a big part in that too. Also segueing into, I guess, um, the prolactin side of things. I know you mentioned on Mark, but like your own sort of challenges with prolactin, maybe you want to explain to my audience, like, what is the actual function of prolactin? Why can it be high? Just a little background on that is uh, I know I experienced some high prolactin. Mine was likely due to, I am somebody who is also on TRT. Though I preach more frequent injections all of the time, and I think that that's very important, which we can get into. I often get so busy with my life that I'll be like, oh my goodness, like seven days has gone by since I've done a shot. And then I give myself the bolus that I tell everybody that they shouldn't do. And I will probably really reduce my SHBG, spike my free testosterone, which causes high aromatization, which causes high estrogen, probably ramping up my prolactin as well. It kind of was like my libido was down, which was weird for me. My, my wife's beautiful. We've all never had a problem in that regard. I've never had a problem in that regard. And I was just kind of confused by it. And I went and did my labs, who I'm a partner with, and found my prolactin was sky high. A little bit of the mechanism, you know, prolactin. And we may know prolactin as in women. It kind of promotes that milk right after a, a woman. Their progesterone goes down, prolactin goes up to allow them to start lactating and, you know, feeding the child. In men, obviously, we shouldn't be. However, prolactin is released after an orgasm in men. And it's the inhibitory hormone to say, like, calm down, you know, around. I know all kinds of men have jokes. Post-orgasm, uh, we'll keep it clean, uh, where, you know, you just all of a sudden have no interest in what you just did or you're, you know, you're watching something. You're like, why was I watching that? And, you know, you get out of there and that's probably mediated through prolactin. And so if you, you kind of know that feeling and if you imagine if that prolactin was always elevated, you're kind of stuck in that where libido's down, erection qualities are down or the ability to gain erection. It has a part in the orgasm itself and it can really delay what's called the refractory period or the time between orgasms and so we do see that things that cause elevations in it that we are thc is a big one kratom something that a lot of people have picked up recently that can, people who eat high amounts of casein protein or the, the protein found in dairy will experience it i've seen some i believe i think i've heard you talk about gluten being uh, an agent that may ramp it up. And then also I kind of have those who are, you know, watching too much pornography or things, or, you know, having multiple orgasms in a day, obviously you're kind of stimulating the secretion of that over and over again, and may end up being a bit higher. Hmm. And what about also from like the medication side of things like SSRIs, I'd imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, SSRIs and opiates are, are kind of the big ones that we see and definitely the SSRIs and, you know, they come with their own host of sexual uh, dysfunction and, you know, that's a big part of it there too. Yeah. So going back to like, I guess, like your own journey, Adam, you obviously jumped on TRT. What was the ultimate driver behind making that decision? Yeah, that was just from being a stupid young kid, honestly, which you know, I see every, I don't want to call these guys stupid, but I see every day that, you know, kids come in wanting to do this. And I, I get it because I was there, you know, with me when I was younger, you know, part of that, me getting really into exercise and everything, which I kind of jumped over was actually me having a pretty severe eating disorder, both like kind of a, a hybrid of anorexia and bulimia for a while, which progressed past, you know, I didn't even really see it happening until I, you know, I went to I was so like skin and bones and I kind of had to build up from there. But I think there was always some bit of issue with my, my self-confidence and my self-worth and my appearance. And so, you know, obviously if I was somebody who went to the extremes of like anorexia and bulimia, when I got into working out, there's the other side of the extreme of what can I do to make this like, you know, as good as I can. So I started running steroid cycles 
And then I, I pretty much just got on and stayed on because I kind of, from what little bit of research I could find, I kind of felt like it would probably be safer for me to do the more blast and cruise type rather than doing these uh, post-cycle therapies and everything. And I did that for a series of years, a long, long time. And unfortunately, back then when I was doing this stuff, everybody wasn't talking about it. I think that's fortunate and unfortunate. In one way, not everybody was talking about it. So not everybody was getting on it. You really had to scour the forums to get deep into how to even do this stuff. Nowadays, you just open up YouTube and every 19-year-old kid of the tripods telling you about their cycle. So it's kind of, <laughs> that's great. But with that, a lot of good information has come out too. We have people like yourself, Derek, and all these guys who have safer use or how to maybe even avoid it. But with that, you know, I was doing my own cycles. I was doing things. And all we ever heard about was side effects are going to be like acne and hair loss. And I'm like, well, I don't have acne. I don't have hair loss. Like load me up. And then they would say things like, well, you might get elevated blood pressure for a little bit, but it'll go down afterwards. No big deal. And, or same with like lipids. And, and so I didn't really even care. I hardly even got blood work and I probably abused things for way too long. Eventually to the point when I just, you know, wanted to stop and went down to, you know, a, a TRT dose. So it wasn't really like, I mean, I guess that point was a necessity, but it wasn't due to my body shutting down on its own or due to nutritional deficiencies or environmental exposures. It was literally due to stupidity. I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about, I guess, the old school methods of application for TRT, how that's transformed over the years. What have we learned? I know before you sort of mentioned injection frequency playing a you know critical role. How has it evolved over time? the use of yeah i think it's still evolving and unfortunately i see very few clinics doing what i consider to be kind of the more cutting edge or more evidence-based treatment i mean still kind of the gold standard is that the patient one injection weekly so that large bolus and they'll often just throw in an aromatase inhibitor right off the bat so that's something that's stopping the conversion of testosterone to estrogen why they do that you know yeah, I know they're trying to keep estrogen down, but why you would want to do that, I'm not exactly sure. You know, that's kind of just the gold standard. They'll do that. Some are even worse. And some doctors will give once monthly injections, which is one summer, like every two weeks. And then sometimes we get the opposite where a lot of these TRT clinics are now literally, they're like drug dealers because the people will come to me and they're like, I'm on 400 testosterone, nandrolone, oxandrolone, growth hormone. And I'm like, that is not replacement. Like, This is supposed to be replacing a physiological dose. You know, we're talking about somewhere probably between 600 and 900 nanograms per deciliter, not 3,000, anandrolone and oxandrolone and everything else. So where we and other providers like Merrick Health, we definitely try to take more of an evidence-based approach, which is, like you mentioned, I think a big one is injection frequency. I mean, it's pretty much common sense. You think if your your natural body, your testes are producing testosterone daily and small doses, if we're doing a replacement, we should probably try to mimic that closely. Yeah, there's the argument of the ester and the slower release, and I get that, but it, it's not that slow. And so what we find is usually about three times a week is probably ideal, though we do have some doing more frequent, even daily, just micro injections. That just leads to a lot more stable. And like I mentioned, when you have those more stable levels, you don't crush the SHBG or the sex hormone binding globulin as much. You maintain a, a constant level of testosterone, which also doesn't spike the estrogen. There never is any need for an aromatase inhibitor, which is, you know, a medication made for female cancer patients often. Not that they their use and some actually do need them, but to just throw them in arbitrarily from the get-go just seems a little crazy to me. Yeah. So that's another thing that we don't do. Yeah. And also in regards to you sort of mentioning keeping that stable, stable levels of testosterone, minimizing extreme fluctuations, yeah. maybe do you want to sort of explore like, what is that sort of like sweet spot for a number of guys? Like, is there a particular, you see maybe like in between 800 and 1200 seems to be like work quite well. What's the variables there? Yeah. See, so this is kind of where I, I think I may differ and I don't know. I just look at blood work every single day and I talk to guys every day, you know, probably 15 to 20 guys a day, day in and day out. I'm looking at blood work. So thousands of guys that I've met and I've seen testosterone at 300 and I'm looking at the guy and he is Jack where, you know, doctor patient confidentiality, they have no need to lie to me. And why would they? They're probably coming, trying to get it anyway. 
going to get it if they tell me they've already been on it. So they're not lying to me. They've never been on any testosterone. They look great. They feel great. Their libido's fine. And they have a 300 or a 400. Conversely, I've seen people who are 900 plus who don't look big. They don't look fit. They feel like crap. They have poor libido. And so I do think that there's more to it than just the number. That's something that we kind of do differently in merit to it. You know, just because somebody has a, a number that's within range doesn't necessarily mean that they're not a candidate or if they're lower, they're a candidate. You kind of have to take it both subjectively and objectively. But, you know, our sweet spot that we see, if I had to take an average, I would say it's usually somewhere between 600 and 900 is what I tell people. Maybe you can push that a little bit higher, but in my opinion, I kind of talked about, I've done a lot of self-experimentation and I know this is N of one, but I've literally had my testosterone anywhere from like 300 to 3000. And, it, you know, I know with multiple like high crazy gear use. And yeah, I really don't feel a lot of difference between like a, anywhere in that normal physiologic range. I don't feel a ton of difference. And it's not until I get way into the super physiologic ranges that I actually like feel much. And even at that, you know, when you're blasting gear, you don't feel that much different. What I really feel, I think, is libido, almost an annoying libido that makes it uh, kind of counterproductive to the rest of life because you can't really think of much else or you make really poor decisions based on your libido. But, you know, I do think that testosterone has been mystified kind of in our society. People are literally thinking that it's like that, uh, you know, that Captain America movie where he gives him the injection, he comes out jacked and he was scrawny before. I mean, I think people are really thinking that they're going to have this kind of change. And we don't see that, you know, I actually find more often than not that people come to me and they're they're kind of disappointed with being on TRT. They thought it was going to be something better than it is, you know. And so I actually spend probably more of my day trying to talk people out of the use of testosterone and trying to look at other vectors of their health before jumping on that bandwagon. Because, you know, as you know, the body is super complex. Testosterone is one of many hormones, one of many neurotransmitters, neuromodulators. It's just one small. It's popular in society, likely because it's illegal. You know, it's something that's catchy to talk about. You know, there's so many other things that impact how one feels. This is really important. I'm glad you brought that up because that's obviously like, yeah, a lot of men think that it's just that one hormone that really matters. There are other components. So, for example, maybe we can dive deep into maybe like thyroid optimization because that's often it can be lagging. Sort of dive deep into how that can affect one's health. Yeah, absolutely. for sure. Thyroid is not uh, such a complex kind of um, hormone that works on so many various systems. And so, yeah, that's one that often people don't even kind of, I mean, actually today I had a patient who came in thinking that he had low testosterone and his testosterone was 700. So it was perfectly fine. But his TSH, his thyroid stimulating hormone was just under six. So it was five point something, very elevated. We actually would prefer to see that lower below two. And for the listeners, what that is, it's a thyroid stimulating hormone, essentially exactly what it sounds like. It's a hormone that's released to tell the thyroid to produce hormone. So your body essentially thinks that it needs more. It senses a deficiency. And that's kind of our goal. You know, how your thyroid function is a higher TSH is related to hypothyroidism. And yeah, so all of his symptoms, when he kind of looked into thyroid, he goes, you know, I have all these, you know, I feel really tired. I often feel cold. My skin quality is bad. I have a lot of GI upset. You know, that was his problem. It wasn't testosterone. So there's different areas and vectors to look into. Mm. Yeah. I'd imagine like, for example, at the global picture, obviously we've got like hormone optimization. And then what about like some areas of like nutrition and some of the things you've seen, like. I'd imagine you've trialed different types of diets over the years, but like maybe sort of share what you've learned through nutrition, experimentation, things like that. Yeah. And I think that's something I do wish sometimes I even had more time with these, these guys when they're coming through, you know, I'll meet with them for a half hour or so. And I really need to spend like three hours because before you want to jump onto some testosterone that you become literally dependent on and kind of married to for life, you should really consider like, have I dialed in everything else? Do I feel this way due to a nutritional deficiency? Or do I feel this way due to some environmental exposure I'm having or due to a lack of sleep? You know, there's so many other things with nutrition, you know, that's a big one. And nutrition can actually be causing the low testosterone if you do have it. And maybe we should just fix the nutrition rather than giving you a bandaid with an injection. In myself, my nutrition, 
I've kind of tried a little bit of everything. Like when I first started, you know, bodybuilding, working out, I got very into everything's got to be clean and, you know, whatever that even means, I don't know, but it essentially meant that it was food that didn't taste very good. A lot of uh, brown rice, maybe sweet potatoes, broccoli, a lot of broccoli and a lot of lean poultry, like chicken breast, which was quote unquote clean. And then I kind of progressed. My sport changed a little bit. So I changed too. I got more into CrossFit and then they were doing all paleo, which was essentially eat whatever your ancestors ate. And that didn't really make sense after a while. I'm pretty sure they probably ate whatever they possibly could eat. And I'm sure they would have loved to get down on some fast food if it was in front of them. And so, but after that, I kind of, uh, when I got more into science and, and biochemistry and nutrition and started learning about it, I realized that a lot of what we preach is kind of and a lot of it is just a lot of fear mongering to sell the product. So a lot of these various diets are, I don't really see them as being evidence-based. They're more, you know, they're trying to sell you something. I found that for me and what probably what's best for most people is having a lot of variety in your diet, something that makes you happy so that you'll adhere to it. I try to eat mostly whole foods. And so for me, that's all kinds of meat. That's all kinds of fruits and vegetable. That's all kinds of grains. I try to limit my processed foods. I don't completely eliminate processed foods. There's some that I, I like. I just figure that if the bulk of my food whole, that's probably better. And then really the main things I'm looking at is how much food I'm consuming. So I know around where my caloric intake should be. I try to keep it there. I focus on my protein requirements and I try to hit a certain fiber goal a day. Other than that, when it comes to fat and carbohydrates, I really don't think it matters. Each person is different. I know for me, I actually work really well on a higher carbohydrate diet, a lower to moderate amount of fat. And then I know other people who are the exact opposite and they function really well on higher fat and lower carbohydrate. So I kind of feel like everybody needs to find out what's best for them and kind of do that and not just go with what expert is telling you on Instagram uh, and has kind of scared you into telling you that if you don't eat this way, that you're going to develop all these diseases, you know? Yeah, no, I respect that approach. Definitely. Cause, um, as far as like your own experiments in the past, like I'd imagine when you were like bodybuilding and training really hard, like, like how high did you push your carbohydrate? Like, did you go to that real extreme level? Yeah, for sure. And the, probably the, the biggest I got was actually like, a, I don't know, a year or two. I really was like, I'm going to give this one final push. And I got up my carbohydrates for like five or 600 grams a day. I was getting pretty big, but I was also watching my A1C start to kind of creep up, which wasn't fun. I overall didn't feel very good either, a massive amount of food. And I think people often don't understand that I actually get a lot of athletic guys coming. They're fit. They've got a lot of muscle, but they are in a caloric surplus all the time. And a caloric surplus of quote unquote healthy food is a caloric surplus. You're still causing the same type of responses that these people are developing insulin resistance the same way that they would if they were getting a caloric surplus of McDonald's and things, you know, maybe there's some arguments as to the quality of the foods and different, you know, saturated fats and trans fats and things, but still the caloric surplus is the caloric surplus and it puts a strain on the body. And mm -hmm. so we do see people in all kinds of diets. We see people in carnivore diets and keto diets come in with insulin resistance and high A1Cs, which is kind of confusing to people, but it occurs, you know, and it occurs because they're are eating in a surplus still. I know you sort of mentioned like the um, insulin resistance that can develop through just simply being in that surplus. What about some like potent interventions that you've utilized or powerful interventions? I know you've talked about the semaglutide as a GLP-1 agonist. What else have you utilized in your repertoire? You know, to I mean, I think that the thing that everybody should do is just kind of get into a deficit. The research shows that being in a caloric deficit, independent of even losing weight, people improve their insulin sensitivity. And, you know, that's big. And that's the main thing. And, you know, that would be the 90% of it should be basically lifestyle, trying to put on some muscle mass, trying to do some cardiovascular work and trying to get in somewhat of a deficit. The other 10%, the supplementation or the medication, the GLP-1 agonists, like, you know, you mentioned semaglutide is one that we use often. Great at that. Semaglutide a glucagon-like peptide agonist, it, it works on the pancreas to basically better or improve the function of the pancreas and its ability to secrete insulin. It's what's called an incretin. It'll also work in the periphery to the sensitivity to insulin. And then what's really cool about that one, probably how it works the best, in my opinion, is it literally kind of knocks out people's hunger. 
a dozen various pathways, some pathways in the, in the brain, but also some pathways in the gut by slowing down digestion, slowing down gastric emptying. And so in a way, it's almost a medication that is like a gastric sleeve or a gastric bypass. People will eat small amounts of food and feel very full. It's almost impossible to overeat on it. And so they just stop eating. It also kind of changes people's craving. They used to crave the sweets all the time. I often will hear that I just, I didn't really want that anymore. And when I took a bite of it, it wasn't that appetizing. So, you know, it's kind of in two ways. It's helping to get that caloric deficit. It's also helping the pancreas, the tissues to become more insulin sensitive. So really, really cool drug. From like the anti-aging longevity side of things, curious to know about like what your stance is with medication metformin. I personally like that. It's something that I take myself. I know, I think you've talked a lot about, I like berberine on paper too. I don't like berberine when I take it myself because I get very sick. And, you know, there's some funny stories associated with that, but uh, I was taking it and I had taken it one night after eating a lot and I got very sick, very, very, very sick where, you know, coming out both ends. And I thought that I got food poisoning and it took me a few days to recover. A few days later, I'm good and I have a big meal and I go to pop Burberry and I get very sick again. And for some reason, it didn't register to me that, and I'm thinking there's something wrong with me. Um, and so again, a few days ago, the worst part, this was during that time when I was getting very big and, and I ate kind of a typical bro meal, which was a tuna fish, some mayonnaise. And I think I had pasta alongside of it, ate a ton of it. And I took a Burberry and then even worse, I went to go get a massage and I was getting a massage and that feeling came on. And oh my God, I was sitting there so nauseated the entire time. And I was dripping just from like trying to hold in vomit. And the second she, she was done, I threw on my clothes and sprinted and I threw up all over their bathroom. I spent like a half hour cleaning up their bathroom. Oh. And then I realized, you know what? It's the berberine. This is what's making me very sick. And it's actually pretty common. People, either metformin or berberine, they both can cause a lot of GI upset. For me, I never had an issue with metformin, so I stuck with that. The kind of mechanism I use metformin for are that basically glucose disposal agent is what people will term it as, where it essentially upregulate the glucose receptors on the muscle bring in glucose. So it'll help to lower your glucose that way. It may also stop the liver from overproducing too much glucose, which is something we see in, in patients with insulin resistance that their liver is kind of inappropriately just cranking out sugar and making the whole matters worse. But what's really cool about it though, too, and, and like you brought up the longevity part of things is there's been a lot of data on metformin, mainly because metformin is the, the most widely prescribed medication in the world. We have a lot of data to look at and we can see that people taking metformin tend to live longer on average, tend to have all-cause mortality, which is kind of counterintuitive when you think about these are people who have diabetes taking it. Why are people with diabetes living longer? And it seems to be it's probably this metformin, mTOR pathway and kind of slowing down growth in a way, which is why some bros don't like it, but I, I'm one that I think that it's probably not going to inhibit gains too much and maybe better for you in the long run. Yeah, that's exactly the marginal decrease in muscular gains would be like, I don't know, like 5% or so, but like very minimal. Yeah. Often the, the forums, you know, the guys will talk about a study. And if you actually dive into that study where they actually looked at muscle mass, um, which I've done, I'm pretty sure the population that they were studying was over the age of 65. So we already know they're going to have a harder time putting on muscle. They were eating less than 50 grams of protein a day. You're not going to build muscle in that. And they were taking 1,700 milligrams of metformin. I am taking 500 and that's usually what we recommend 200 to 500 for a little bit of benefit. So in that regard, I just don't think that you're really going to mess up your gains too much. That means I've heard of a lot of uh, top level, like Olympian open uh, bodybuilder guys taking metformin. I don't think it's inhibiting their muscle mass much, you know? Nope. nope. With that, um, that berberine story that you're mentioning, I was just thinking about like, all I could picture was like, was the, your actual puke, was it yellow, like berberine? I think it was. It was. Yeah. Oh, it was so bad. I didn't know if it was a brand that I got or what, but it just does resonate. Well. And I hate that it took me so long to figure out too. My poor wife thought I was dying. We both did. I was like, I'm going to have to go in because every time I'm eating, I'm getting so sick. I can't believe it took me so long to figure out. Yeah. Now I just like shudder when I you know think about berberine. With the GDAs, glucose disposal agents, I think metformin is an amazing medication. I've used it personally, like off-label, whatever, like in my own time here and there on holidays and stuff like that. The actual one compound that's really exciting is the dihydroberberine. Have you 
seen me talk about that at all. Yeah, you a little bit. Other than that, I don't know much about it, honestly. Yeah, I'm excited to see more research on that. If we did like a head-to-head comparison, I guess the fact that it's like more bioavailable, GI side effect, you know, lower dosage, I think it'd be interesting to see how it does compare to metformin as far as like a, a glucose-lowering challenge yeah, I actually kind of like them used in conjunction too. If you're really like, you know, one of those top level bodybuilders that's having to shuttle down 600 plus grams of carbs a day, why not? they would probably benefit from a little basal insulin too to take a little stress off the pancreas. But why not utilize both those pathways of berberine and metformin as well? That's kind of something in my past now, probably never go down that road of trying to build and bodybuild again. But and I think if you're trying to be as kind of a risk adverse as possible, your whole metabolic pathways as far as your how you're dealing with glucose is huge because having that constant increase in glucose and having that insulin resistance is going to cause a, you know a lot of issues it may look great on the outside but these guys are riddled you know pathology on their blood work hmm. what about as far as like exogenous insulin usage did you personally have a trial like baby doses of insulin at all i never did no that's one thing i went down the they used to actually scare me a lot back before I thought that that was the one thing that was super scary. Looking back now, I'm like, that's probably the one kind of safer, you know, that's when we have a ton of data. What scared me, I guess, was more of the fast acting insulins. And I was afraid of, you know, becoming hypoglycemic and, and killing myself that if I were to do any of that ever again, I think, like I said, I would use one like Atlantis, like a, a long acting basal insulin to kind of just take a little bit of burden off the pancreas. Because one part of insulin resistance is actually the kind of the burnout of the beta cells of the pancreas. They shoot out so much, for lack of better terms, they burn out. And I would assume in these guys who are eating every two hours, eating a ton of grams of carbohydrates, those beta cells do kind of burn out. Mm. As far as like some of the other interventions and things, I could imagine lots of guys have, let's say, been on TRT, for example, maybe like five to 10 years. And, and now they're like, right, I've seen some incredible benefits. You know, I've, I've transformed my body. I've lost I feel motivated, energetic, and crushing life. I'd imagine there's a population, subset of the population that would be inspired to add an additional compound to maybe enhance some of the effects of TRT. So maybe did you want to explore what you've seen guys doing or maybe what you've done in the past? Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there's so many other synthetics and things that one can use. It's not something you know, I'll tell guys all the time, they're coming to me like, oh, I'm really interested in Anadrol and Nandrolone. And I'm like, you know, from a medical standpoint, I can't help you do performance enhance. And, you know, that's a whole discussion on its own. But at least here, you know, in the States, it clearly says in our license, I will never use like anabolic steroids for the use of performance enhancing. And so where I'm kind of limited with that, but some other things that people will use, I would say some of the safe would probably be using maybe adding something in um, like a, an oxandrolone, which is an anavor, probably at a lower dose. And you know that would be maybe the benefits of that would be kind of that reduction SHBG. And actually, sometimes we will use it just for that from a standpoint when somebody has such a high SHBG that they may have a really good total testosterone, but their free testosterone low being bound to that protein. And so we'll use these kind of microdoses of oxandrolone, which has a very high affinity sex hormone binding globulin, which kind of free up some of that free testosterone. So that's one that we use. You know, I honestly am kind of a huge proponent of just like really dialing in more of the nutrition and the exercise and the lifestyle if you the best gains. I do really feel like, and I know people will disagree with me, but I don't always believe that it's the drugs that get these top level athletes to where they are. I think it's everything else. I think the drugs are literally their supplement. It's everything else is day in day habits that they have, the nutrition they have, the lifestyle they have. And so a lot of times it's having that conversation of what more can we do in your lifestyle? How can we improve that? We know your hormones are good. Let's let that be the supplement to all this hard work that you need to put in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It totally makes sense. With that SHB, I'd imagine you get a ton of guys asking questions about why does the human body even produce, you know, SHBG? What are some of the major drivers behind why it increases? And maybe is it really that bad by having high SHBG? Yeah. I kind of wonder that a lot myself too. You know, why would our body produce something if it's so bad? 
And actually, you know, it's probably in ways very beneficial. It actually probably helps to carry testosterone into a lot of tissues and actually can be anabolic in that regard. So I don't think that crushing your SHBG all the time the answer. In fact, a lot of times people will feel terrible if their SHBG is too low. We see libido can just kind of go to hell if your SHBG is too low. And one of the ways to get libido back is trying to bring that up. You know, so with that, that can impact SHBG diets actually. So the more insulin sensitive you have, the less insulin spikes you have, you end up having, let's see, trying to get this right. So more insulin spikes <laughs> mean a decrease in SHBG. It always kind of gets there. So we'll actually see very high SHBG in some of the carnivores and in some of the keto uh, diet people that have very high SHBG. Now, isn't that bad? It's hard to say. But if you if you do have a very low one, you're trying to bring it up, you may actually benefit for it by reducing some carbohydrates and, and conversely the other way as well. So diets also issues with the liver. Some people, if they're taking medications that are impacting their liver or they're drinking a lot of alcohol or things, or if they have fatty liver disease, which is very common in our society, we can kind of this inappropriate production of SHBG in either way. Yeah. Seeing as I, I know you just fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, maybe that can be present in, you know, maybe sort of explain that that can typically, it can be present in a, in a lean individual. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think the best example of that would be like Vigorous Steve, you know, which I know a lot of your listeners probably are familiar with as well. And, you know, he kind of did a very cool kind of case study, deep dive into his own experiences with fatty liver disease, probably a a little bit of a mixture of that becoming like insulin resistance due to the high amounts of carbohydrates required to build the muscle that he had. And then the use of, you know, various compounds that are are oral compounds that are hard on the liver. But yeah, this is something that we do see in people who are not necessarily obese. It's something that your liver basically becomes insulin resistant as well and kind of puts on um, adipose tissue around it and puts some strain on the liver. So we see it commonly. Yeah. What about as far as like when it comes to blood work and blood analysis, I know we've sort of already touched on like reference ranges and things like that. What do you think is like there's maybe like one particular marker that often gets neglected, but you think it's actually a really critical marker to get assessed. Yeah. So, I mean, we already touched on like the free testosterone. I think that's a big one that wasn't kind of discussed a lot before. A lot of people will come in and say, my doctor tested my testosterone, but they only got my total. So they didn't actually see their free, which may be very low. And that's why they're feeling the symptoms that they're feeling. I mean, there's so many, it's hard to say just one because so many impact each other as well. If you have a low testosterone, I want to see what's your luteinizing hormone and your follicle stimulating hormone at just the testosterone doesn't tell me a thing. You know, is this a problem with your hypothalamus and pituitary, or is this a problem with your testes and things like that will tell me also something like prolactin, your testosterone is fine, but what's your prolactin looking like? You know, are you having low libido due to that? On that same note, what's your estrogen look like, you know, and what's your SHBG look like? And if your SHBG is a certain way, what's your thyroid look like? Because those are all going to interplay. So it's uh, it's hard to pick out one. And I do think that's kind of one of the issues with healthcare these days is we're more governed by keeping costs down as low as possible. We're governed by, you know, the insurance companies trying to keep costs down or the institution you're in. And so you will just say, this kid has low testosterone symptoms. I will order a total testosterone only. And then that just tells you such a little part of the story. You know, they, as you know, all of these lab markers are in constant harmony and you impact one. And that's another thing that we do. Sometimes you impact one positively, which negatively impacts another, and it can be this cascade. And that's why it's not smart always to take all of these things into your hands. You may see that you have a low testosterone and you may band-aid that with your injection, but you may have caused this other cascade of, of negative hormones, you know? Yeah, uh, it's a really important point. And as far as like, I'd love to learn more about what you've seen clinically. Like, I'd love to hear about some pretty crazy, uh, I'd imagine like transformation journeys, maybe like high impacts, like really positive success stories that you've seen maybe in clinic. I'm sure you've, you've got a few of those. Yeah, yeah, those are those are the ones that make it all worth it, you know. Sometimes, like I kind of touched on in the beginning, a lot of times I'm just trying to talk people out of it and trying to, you know, tell people that they need to fix lifestyle and things. But occasionally we do get, I think it was my first day coming on to Merrick. I had a younger guy who admittedly had just spent the past like 10 or so years playing video games in his basement. And, you know, you could tell, you could see him, he's white and he was, you know, 
out of shape. And I had actually met with him for a follow-up and he just seemed so happy, even though I could still see remnants of his past life. He seemed so happy. He'd already told me that he lost 20 pounds and this had only been a few months and he was out and he had actually met somebody he was dating and he was going out and doing sporting events. And so many things had changed because he was putting in the work too. He wasn't just doing the injection and, and still playing video games, but he was doing the injection and then he was changing his lifestyle. He was changing the way he was eating. He was sleeping more and spending a lot of time on sleep hygiene. And then he was going and putting himself in uncomfortable situations situations like dates and things and rewiring his neurochemistry. And it was just so cool to see, you know, I'm almost like getting like goosebumps thinking about that because it is possible, you know, it's just the reminder that that testosterone is just a supplement. It's all that other stuff. And it may have given him that one little kick to do it. Even if it was a placebo, he was injecting himself, but he did all that other work and it was so cool to see. And we see stuff like that all the time. And it's beautiful. I love that. That's uh, you know, really cool stuff to see. Yeah, it's definitely rewarding and empowering as well. Like for the client, like I'd imagine it totally makes it worth it. Like that sort of transformation, that sort of success, like that feedback that you got from him, you know, means a lot, a lot. Yeah, it's so cool. It's so cool to see. I absolutely love seeing that stuff. We actually see it you know, pretty often this kind of work is so rewarding. In medicine, we get stuck in that reactive. And a lot of times it's just things have regressed to so far that I can kind of make terrible a little less bad, but I can't, you know, I can't change people's lives this way. A lot of the time I'm stuck. I'm having to tell them I'm going to have to cut off your foot or something, you know, and it's almost making their life worse. And so with this health coaching and everything that we're doing at Merrick health, it's, it's been awesome. Mm. What about as far as like, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are as far as like the microbiome, like have you spent you know, much time researching things that impact the microbiome, gut bacteria at all? Yeah, that one is one that has kind of completely perplexed me and I really don't have a, a lot of knowledge on. I honestly, I don't think as a scientific community as a whole, we really do. I think I like explained it to a patient the other day. I kind of liken it to, you know, like the ocean, like, you know, we live around it and, but we have no idea really what's going on in the ocean. It's so vast. It's so is so complex. And that's kind of what's happening within our own bodies. You know, there's so many hundreds of thousands of various organisms living within us, and we don't even fully understand it. Even when I see these gut and microbiome studies come out, I'm always left just basically saying like, we need to learn more about that. You know, it's never conclusive enough to me to understand. That being said, it seems to be extremely dynamic and have a lot of impact on a lot of various systems. So especially even in the hormonal world, I think one of the big ones that we see is the gut thyroid axis seems to be huge. And probably a lot of the autoimmunity seen in thyroid dysfunction may have some origin in the gut or vice versa. It could be either way. I haven't really determined that yet, but it seems to be you know, pretty well connected. There's also various, uh, even like brain health seems to be connected to the gut and then various other hormones. I've seen papers on like progesterone in the gut. So it's super cool. It seems it's uh, like I said, perplexing. It's vast as a scientific community. I really don't think we fully understand it, but I kind of do think it will be the, the next wave, hopefully in 20 or so years, this conversation has really evolved. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting space. I'm trying to keep my finger on the pulse as far as like you know, new bacteria, acomansia, lactobacillus. <laughs> There's so much yeah. out there. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's like where these, uh, like the carnivore diet and stuff, like they'll talk a lot about that. And you can't deny people's anecdotal experiences where they will have a, what seems to be like an autoimmune disease or something. And they go on this uh, restrictive type diet and they are elimination type diet and they get these amazing results from it. And there, you know, there's, so there's probably something going on there with the gut and I can't say that they're all wrong. It's obviously very evident that it's helping. Yeah. What about as far as like, what do you really see is the future of medicine as far as like, I know we're definitely leaning more towards that personalization approach, but I'd love to hear about like, you know, what do you see as the future of healthcare? Yeah, I do think that probably at some point it'll be probably more directed towards like genes. So they're figuring out medications based on one's genome, which is another one that I, uh, you know, I am not good at. You brought up, am I good at studying? Man, uh, freaking anything having to do with genes and stuff in school was, oh, I hated it. I, I absolutely hated that stuff. It's so complex, but that will probably be the way, you know, looking at people's DNA and figuring out 
how can we target medication specifically to them and their various pathways and different polymorphisms and things that they have. I'm sure that's kind of the, the future of medicine, very personalized based on, you know, a cellular level like that. Mm, yeah. So Adam, I'd love to give my, um, my audience a chance to obviously like check you out on, I know we sort of mentioned, uh, yeah, yeah, not so much on social media, but if they want to like connect with you or learn more about you and your services, where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I am on Instagram. I probably don't post as much as I should, but I'd love to uh, meet any of you guys. So my Instagram, I can't even remember my handle. I think it's Dr. A.E. Hotchkiss. <laughs> um, and then the company that my health coaching company, mine and my uh, wife, she's a dietitian, is Atlas Optimization. And that's who I'm partnered with Merrick Health. I'll do a lot more with Merrick Health than I ever do with my own company. So you can kind of find me on any of those platforms. And you know, I'd love for any of your uh, listeners to reach out. Love working with you guys. Awesome. I'll make sure to leave those linked in the show notes for those listening in, but uh, I'll make sure I send you the right link. I, uh, I can't even remember my own handle. I'm terrible at this stuff. That's all right. I can, I can uh, sort that out pretty easily, but um, yeah, Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. It's a, it was a pleasure chatting. Yeah. It was a lot of fun, man. I really appreciate it. I appreciate everything you're doing too. It's a lot of uh, really cool, like esoteric stuff. I've learned a lot from you over the years and it's, uh, it's, it's cool to meet and talk and love to do it again. Yeah. Awesome. I appreciate it, man. I will speak soon. All right. Thank you everyone for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.